Marketers, the age of the customer has arrived and Salesforce is with you for every step of your customer's journey with your brand. Blaze trails across your entire business to create one connected customer experience. With Salesforce, be smarter and more predictive with your marketing using an intelligent platform that integrates marketing with sales, service, and commerce by engaging your customers on any device and channel in real time. Learn more at salesforce.com money. Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to Listen Money Matters. As long as the outcome is income, we're good. <laughs> my name is Thomas, and I'm here as always with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you? And what are you drinking today? Good. I saw you pour it, but I didn't see the label. Uh, I, you know, I might have had this last week, actually. Uh, it's River Horse Hippo Lantern, Hippo Lantern Imperial Pumpkin. Uh, it's like the most... You did ex- have a hip... You did have a River Horse. Mm. It was probably know, make, this one. It might have been. I, we, we had a... Uh, uh, bunch of people over and i just have a lot of them so i just have to you know nice. burn them down we do have several pumpkin beers in our fridge and i'm actually drinking a beer today this is not a pumpkin beer though You're it what? is uh it is purple haze from abita and it yeah. has like this this like i don't know louisiana skeleton man on the label That's- and it has raspberry in it it's pretty good but more importantly look at this bottle opener i got this thing. It's, like, it's like a rabbit with a, and he's holding a key and then the end of the key is a bottle opener. Oh my god, that's from uh, Alice in Wonderland or something. Uh, it might be. I mean, I, that was the first thing I. That. That's what it reminded me of when I saw it in the store. Yeah, um, Anna took me into the store in the mall that apparently Laura loves as well because she mentioned that she told Laura about it. I, don't, I think it's called Anthropology or something. Oh yeah, yeah. But yeah, I saw it in there and I was like, that's great. And it's better than our crappy bottle opener. So I'm going to buy it. <laughs> See, and, and Laura loves anthropology. because She goes to the thrift store, finds their things for two ninety nine, and sells it online <laughs> for like 30 to 40. So when she there sees it, she like texts me and celebrates. That's smart. Okay. So normally we do our catchphrase before introducing our guests, but I can see our guest is drinking something. So Eric, what are you drinking today? Hey, uh, thanks for having me today. Uh, I feel a little left out because everybody's drinking beer. I'm uh, I'm just drinking uh, basic uh, Jack Daniels and Diet Coke. Hey, that works. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's at least you put some effort into mixing. I don't know. Oh, yeah. You're a step above us today. I've been I I've been trying not to drink as much beer. It's not as not as I don't know if it's not as healthy. More calories. It's not as good for you. So I switched over to whiskey. That's true. I mean, a, a Jack and Coke is probably just about as unhealthy. But oh yeah, absolutely. It'll, it I gets mean, you there faster. Beer. yep i always like to tell myself that whiskey is lighter but then i look at the calories and like oh it's like i don't know 100 calories a shot or something (laughs) (laughs) i'm a huge fan of beer i drink i love beer i love sam adams Mm -hmm. Uh, you know especially the summer that's my favorite one Mm. oh yeah Uh, that's a good one yeah so i but i've just been trying to lay off the beer for a little while Mm -hmm. yeah especially after fincon anywho our catchphrase this week comes from at be the market on Twitter. It was actually as long as the outcome is income. And I just threw some extra words on it because it didn't seem grammatically complete. Well, but I think still, you'd have to talk to Drake phrase. about that. Yeah. I, I, oh, wait, is he, that? he did like at Drake when he like said that to me. So. Oh, OK. Maybe Drake's like going to show up at your house and show you grammar. Is he? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, that'd be pretty cool. I don't know if he wants to come to Iowa, though. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, guys, send us your catchphrases if you want us to have them read on the show. And uh, we are at Money Matters Man on Twitter, so send them over there or to our email. It's moneymatters at gmail.com. And to get into the content of today's show, our guest uh, is Eric Bolin. And Eric, you're basically full-time investing in real estate, but more specifically, you're investing in multi-unit real estate, right? Yep, that's right. I invest in uh, mostly two to five unit multifamily properties. So with two to five unit, does that mean you're buying a very small apartment building or is it like those big Victorian houses that get kind of remodeled into multiple units inside one building? Um, what's kind of your focus? Uh, well, it's uh, where I invest in Massachusetts. It's mostly some pretty old uh, inventory, some old stock up there. So a lot of it, uh, there's, there's a couple different uh, styles that are popular they call them three deckers up north uh just uh three units stacked on top of each other like row houses uh 
Like, uh, no, if, if you think of, like, old-style New York or old-style, like, Boston. Oh, is it kind of like what you live in, Andrew? Uh, that's what I'm imagining it's like, yeah. Uh, I don't think they, they're not side-by-side. Side. They're actually on top of each other. Yeah, yeah. So. Like, I'm on the third floor of a three-story building. Okay, yeah. So, you can, yeah. so it's just a different word for the same thing. And there's, like, no like. space on the sides of the houses. It's just the whole block are that. Right. Well, it can be. It depends on how uh, thickly it's settled. Mm. You know, I've seen them, some giant ones on decent pieces of land. And then as you get towards, the, you know, closer to where the old factories used to be, they get closer and closer together. Mm. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Those, so those are really popular up there. And uh, then there's also uh, single family houses that have been converted to multifamily houses. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's generally what I'm doing. Some older inventory type stuff um, in Massachusetts. Now, is that what you started with, or did you start with single family? Yeah, so the way I got started is actually kind of interesting. I I, uh, I would say I accidentally became an investor. Uh, really? So, <laughs> yeah, so I, I was trying to buy, I just wanted to buy a home, and I wanted to buy a home where I was going to school. I was in grad school uh, in Massachusetts, and around the, in the city, there's only multifamilies. So in order to be near school, I had to buy a multifamily, and uh, the original plan was to sell it when I got out of school and go be a normal person and buy a single-family house. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that, so I bought a three-unit uh, property similar to the one I was just describing. And uh, during that, I had an epiphany one day. Someone knocked on my door pretty late at night, around nine o'clock at night, which in this sort of neighborhood is late. Nobody goes out that time of night, <laughs> you know, walk, walking through the neighborhood. So uh, it's not very safe. Uh, but anyway, so I, after I figured out who it was and collected the rent, gave him the receipt and sat down, it, like, it, it hit me with an epiphany. I'm like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to have people paying me instead of me going out and trying to make money. And so so you my had life a random, really changed. You had a random person knock on your door at nine at night? It was my tenant. My tenant oh, was paying rent. Sorry. Okay. So basically you bought the, the property and then immediately rented out the other two or right. as soon as you could? Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I kind of skipped that part. So I was living in it. After I bought it, I was living in it, and then I got uh, tenants there. And mm -hmm. one night, a tenant was paying me, uh, pay, came to pay me rent at a random hour. And that's when the epiphany. I had Basically, the epiphany. it's just like it's nine at night, and I just got paid. Holy crap! <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. I was watching a movie with my wife, and someone came and paid me. You know, so it's like, what? I can just watch TV and make money. This is this is what I need to do. Yeah, Andrew, I'm, I'm guessing you've had a similar thing happen where, like, you, the first time you wake up. And you realize that some website you were running has made a sale overnight, and you're just like, "Oh my god!" I, I still am like I in disbelief. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's great. Like your your effort is detached from your income. It's mm -hmm. the dream. Absolutely. So, Eric, do you still own that same three unit house that you had lived in? I do. I actually just uh, just refinanced, or I'm about to close on a refi on it uh, in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing you're not living there anymore, right? You probably have all three units rented out. Uh, I actually live in Texas now, so I'm pretty far away from my rentals. Uh, okay. So, yeah. And yet but you're still sticking with Massachusetts for your yeah. for your further rentals? Yeah, the returns are pretty good in, in that area. I know the market really well, so I know what streets are good, what streets are bad, what towns are good, what cities are good. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's pretty easy for me to invest there from a distance. I can just say, oh, this street in that city, eh, I don't want that one, or... So hey, let's focus over here on that. Why Massachusetts? Because I think I, I believe there's like some sort of correlation between like the more liberal the state is, like the longer or it takes to kick someone out who's not paying you versus like mm -hmm. the most Republican state. And I think you just like kick them out in an hour or something. <laughs> yeah, like Texas. Um, <laughs> I think people get evicted here in just a couple of days. But uh, oh, man. yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And that's something you have to build into your numbers. But I believe in real estate, as long as you build everything at your numbers up front, then it's okay. So I, I plan for six or eight week evictions. Mm -hmm. And uh, it actually creates opportunity because when you're going to go buy a property, these landlords who aren't real pros, they're just like mom and pops type landlords. Maybe they had the property in a family for a couple of generations. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to screen tenants necessarily. And they don't know how to kick tenants out. And they get in a lot of trouble when they go to court. So a lot of times they're willing to sell at a big discount because they just want nothing to do with these properties anymore. Oh, so they keep mm. the shitty tenants in there and they just want to sell the problem away. Yeah, exactly. Cause they okay. can't get them out. So a person like me, who's got a good system in place, good attorneys, et cetera, can go in there get a good discount on these properties, get these people out in eight, six, eight weeks. And I uh, get a good deal on a property. What's the trick? Okay. 
Well, the trick I, I know for Massachusetts works only in Massachusetts, right? Mm -hmm. So you got to figure out what works for you in your other states. But basically, uh, and I think this is probably true across the board, as long as you document everything and follow the law exactly, uh, you should be okay. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, They can make it very expensive to follow the law, and they can make mm -hmm. it really tricky to follow the law. So you just really have to narrow, like get that down pat before you invest in properties that have bad tenants. So basically, just part of your system is knowing exactly how to follow that entire process every time it happens. Exactly. Yeah, I actually okay. have a little calendar, like a sample calendar, because in Massachusetts, they make it really difficult. To, like, if you give a notice to quit on Friday, by two Tuesdays later, you have to file this in court. Like, mm. it's just this totally convoluted process that doesn't even make sense. Okay. So to give people a picture of how you're doing today, I mean, you bought that first property to live in however many years ago, what's your business looking like today in terms of size, number of properties, et cetera? Okay, so I bought my first property in uh, very end of 2009. I think it was the end of November mm -hmm. 2009. We moved into it. Uh, and then I took a couple years off. I actually, I was in grad school and then I deployed overseas to Afghanistan uh, where I got some of my seed money to help me grow. And then uh, I came out very beginning of 2012. I think February is when I bought my first flip. So there's about a two-year gap in there. Uh, then, so basically, I've been growing full full time from 2012 till now, mm -hmm. and I have 26 units now total. Nice. How many uh, buildings, I guess, is that split up between then? Uh, buildings. I think it's uh, eight lots, eight properties, and okay. then a couple of my uh, lots have multiple houses on them mm -hmm. uh, that were just built at different times, like. Over the a generation, someone builds a single-family house behind a multi-family house. I got a couple of things like that going on, but okay. I think I think it's eight uh, off the top of my head. I think it's eight pieces of land. And you said in 2012, you said you did your first flip, right? Yes. So, and that means you bought something and then sold it at a profit. Do you still do that, or have you focused entirely on renting now? I just do rentals now. I, I've done uh, two flips. Mm -hmm. And uh, I made some money on both of them, not a crazy amount of money, uh, but I just realized that that's not what I like to do. I like yeah. buy and hold rentals. Were you in there with tools, fixing stuff up yourself, or did you do the whole delegation thing with those? On the flips, I hired contractors because of the timelines. Okay. With Oh, did you have like buyers already lined up when you bought them yourself? Or? No, but when you uh, when you buy a when you have a flip, time is like really literally money, and every month that you go is either interest on hard money if you're using hard money, or mm -hmm. it's just interest on your own money that you're not getting somewhere else. Uh, okay. so the opportunity costs, as they'd say. So t time is money, and then you're paying taxes and carrying costs, and um, you know insurance and all these other things. So you've got to be really as fast as possible. You don't want to hold a flip for a year. You really want it out in four, you know, three, four, five months. Yeah, that makes sense. Actually, so I went to a Halloween party a few days ago and met somebody who basically like she buys houses and lives in them while flipping them. Hmm. It's kind of an interesting way to do it. That's a great strategy, though, because it's t totally different because when you own it in your own house, you may not uh, be taxed on the uh, profits because it's your personal residence. So that's a little different. Really? That's a little different strategy. Yep. Eric, okay. you mentioned hard money. Can you explain what that is and like how you get it? Yeah, sure. So hard money is uh, money that you borrow from a, a private lender or a private lender broker type person. And like, like uh, Thomas, they basically for put example. together. Uh, I don't know if <laughs> like, you're a like uh, hard money lender. No, I mean, like, but, would you, just a normal person. Hardest just... money lender. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a slight difference between a private lender and a hard money lender. Mm. So a private lender is like, Hey, Thomas, you got $100,000. Can I borrow it? I'll give you whatever percent. That would be a private lender. Mm. Uh, a hard money lender would be like, hey, Thomas, I want to borrow. And then Thomas turns around and says, hey, Andrew, I'll hook you up with this guy for a fee, and then I'll mm. take the fee. Oh, so a hard money lender is basically a middleman, right? essentially. So just it's a conduit to somebody else who has money that the customer doesn't know how to access. Generally, yes. And they charge fees, two to four points in my experience two to four points which is uh you know two percent to four percent of the total loan balance goes mm -hmm. in fees usually to hard money lender that they take for their service and what kind okay. of rates? So it's a lot more expensive mm. what, what kind of rates are they giving 
I mean, right now, like I, you can get something for four and a half percent or lower uh, from a traditional bank. Right. So hard money lend depends on your experience and how much they trust you. Uh, so the rates can vary, but I've seen everything from ten to fourteen percent. Oh wow! So the reason why is because they can Jeez. turn around. Yeah, it's expensive. It it is expensive. I used them a couple times. Basically, my strategy to use hard money lenders, the couple times that I've used them is I already have my money on a deal somewhere else, but mm -hmm. another deal pops up that's too good to let go. So I'd rather take a 10% hit on that because I'm still making so much money right. on the deal. There's still a margin to be had there that you might not have otherwise had. So is exactly. this just a case where the bank wouldn't lend to you because maybe you're already you know, utilizing so much debt or for some other reason? Well, banks are risk averse. So they don't like mm -hmm. to take on projects that need a lot of work or are vacant. Okay, cool. So basically, hard money lender is going to charge you more because it's a high risk thing, and mm -hmm. that's your ticket to making money on those kind of deals. Right. You go into a three-family property that's got totally vacant, no tenants, or it's got terrible tenants that all need to be evicted. So it's earning you zero when you first get into it, and mm -hmm. it needs eighty thousand dollars or whatever amount of work. The bank's going to look at that as a huge risk. They say, we may never get paid on that. It's too risky. The hard money lender uh, is experienced in real estate. and you know They're going to oversee the, help oversee the project. They're going to show up every couple of weeks and look to see what you're doing. And uh, you know, so okay. they're, they're going to take a little bit more interest in what you're doing. They're going to make the money available on projects that never you could never have got lending on. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're going to charge you a lot of money for that. Okay, interesting. So I'm curious as to how your mindset got to the point where you could take on that kind of risk. Because I know we were chatting before we started recording about how you've had friends who you want to get into real estate investing. They've expressed interest, but then they're too, they're too scared and they stay in their jobs. And we've had a lot of listeners who maybe are interested in this, but they come back with a lot of objections. So it seems like your initial foray was pretty tame by all accounts because you kind of mm -hmm. had you had bought it with the intention of living in it and then you didn't really have the intention of being a, a landlord or an investor uh, at least at the outset but with these hard money things like what was your justification for taking on higher risk were you just kind of sure did you have some sort of process for vetting the investment that made you sure right so by the time i took on hard money the first time i, I had already done a few deals so i knew mm -hmm. what i was doing uh which I was able to convince them to give me the money because I had some experience now. And so, you know, I was a little bit more experienced. I probably wouldn't have done that on my, you know, if that was my first or second deal. I just mm -hmm. wouldn't have been confident in myself enough. Even if the process was the same, I probably wouldn't have been confident enough in it. Uh, so, but as taking a step back as far as mindset or getting started, uh, for someone who's brand new, I usually recommend one of two things. You just say you, you buy a, a property that you're going to live in, like a multifamily that you can do traditional FHA or VA or whatever other funding. Um, so have a pretty tame first deal just to get your feet wet. Yeah. Or if you're already living somewhere and you don't want to move, I would say take on a partner who's experienced. And that way you can, uh, if you have money especially, you provide money to the partner, they do the work, and you get to learn everything along the way and still earn money in the process. Have you partnered okay. with anyone before? I have, I have, I've partnered uh, on on a few deals. And would you recommend it as something you do in the future, or was it like a stepping stone, and then you'd prefer just to do it on your own? Uh, I would say that partnering is the way all the big, really big people do—the multi-millionaire and billionaires—they partner on every deal there is. Hmm. Um, you know, so is that like, just to spread risk or to allow access to bigger deals? Uh, bigger deals mainly, uh, okay. and they try to get other people's money on it so they can do more stuff. So, um, mm -hmm. like uh, one th one book that kind of opened my eyes to it a little bit, you know, not to go into any politics, but it was the Art of the Deal. Uh, so back in the '80s, he was doing these huge deals, like uh, major uh, hotels and casinos and stuff, and he wasn't putting any of his own money into it. He was just putting contracts out on multiple pieces of property next to each other. And then hiring an engineer to, to design a building and say, hey, I've got all these under contract and I've got this great building. Who wants to fund it? And he wasn't putting any money on a deal. Mm. Um, Did he know, own so, the land? No, he just had a contract to purchase it, an option to purchase uh, in, in many of these deals that he was talking about. And that's so how basically anybody could have swooped in and, and grabbed that land. It just happened that he had drawn up a contract and got people to invest soon enough. 
Mm-hmm. Well, with the option of with the option of purchase, usually it's a like a twelve month option. Uh, so you say I- I've got the right to purchase the property or not within twelve months or whatever time frame. Uh, how do you pay. how do you get that? Well, that's you a lot bigger level like, than what I than than what I do. Yeah, I know. I just, I'm, just, I'm just curious because I mean, you know, from the perspective of the person who owns the land, you know, you got someone who comes in and says, "I want the option to purchase this land for twelve months." Is that basically just you know, is what's the value proposition for the owner? Is it basically like I'm confident this person can bring in a deal that no one else can. Yeah. So the, uh, the owner might believe that they're going to make a deal out of it. They also usually get a fee. So if they don't close on it, they still get some fee, some percent yeah. of it that would get lost if there's no deal. So, okay. uh, you know, so there's the, it, it's beneficial on both sides. And then the person who's buying doesn't take the risk of buying property, not knowing if they can make a deal. Gotcha. So it's basically like, Hey, uh, I want the option to purchase this for the next year. If I don't do it, I'll pay you enough to basically outweigh the opportunity cost of not selling it to somebody else for that year. And if I do, you're going to get a percentage of the deal, which is going to be big or huge. Or huge. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, something like that. So the way I look at it, as far as partnering, I look at partnering as something that is a good place to start with, but it's also mm-hmm. the end the end goal too. Someday when you want to do hundred million dollar apartment buildings, uh, you know, mm-hmm. long distance in the future, that's, that's what we're not scaling the, up to. Right. <laughs> so why not? So you know, I'm nowhere near that level yet, but why not? You know, that's that's if in 15 years I can be doing that, then great. So mm-hmm. you know, that's all done with partners, and you put people together. And you yeah. go buy those with many people. So even if I'm just doing a couple of one-off deals with some people, ten years from now, those same people will come back and say, "Hey, let's let's buy this bigger property together." Okay, interesting. Support for this podcast comes from Salesforce. Salesforce helps marketers get smarter about their customers and plan better campaigns that blur the lines between marketing, sales, commerce, and service, all in the name of customer success. Salesforce powers marketing for the world's most innovative brands, from tailored emails to engaging mobile apps, social media, and targeted ads. Salesforce helps marketers blaze a trail for the brand journeys their customers want. That's great marketing, made by you at Salesforce. Connect to your customers in a whole new way. See a demo at salesforce.com money. So, Eric, you started buying something to live in and rented it, and somewhere in the middle, you did a flip, and there's a lot of people who say you could do one thing well, not many things, and there's a lot of people who think that the real money is in the flip because you maybe get 100000 in in one deal, potentially, Um, but it looks like you went back and stuck with buying, holding, and renting. Uh, Why? All right. So what I've done, my, my core strategy is I've mixed the flip with the buy and hold rental. And uh, many places on the inter- internet call it the Burr strategy. Uh, I don't know mm. if that's like a, a real coin phrase or not, but basically you, you buy the property, you rehab the property, you rent it out to somebody, and then you refinance it and get most or all of your money back. So you're, you're going to go and okay, find so- a place that uh, maybe cost sixteen thousand is worth like fifty or sixty thousand, but there's like a, a hoarder in there, and they've destroyed the inside. So you buy it, you refresh it. Um, mm-hmm. So you bought it, maybe you put sixteen down, or you put you know twenty percent of sixteen thousand down. Re- rehab it, stick a tenant in, and then you refinance it at the sixty or seventy k level, and pull most, if not all, of your money out. Yeah, exactly. That's a great, uh, you know the numbers and everything. So I wish I could find deals that cheap in Massachusetts, but you know, the, uh, that, that's exactly what the strategy well, is. You put some money in up front and then you get your money back after six or eight or nine months. The, okay, uh, so can you guys explain what the refinancing part is? Cause I don't sure. understand how that so gets you money back. When you buy from, when you buy a property from a bank, like I've done through roof stock and, and you know, on my own, um, they, they send appraisers out and they say the value, the, pro- the value of the property is like 50,000. 80,000, mm-hmm. whatever, and then you take a loan out for 80% of that value. So, right. but if you say you owned a home and you paid off the mortgage, you could always go to a bank and get what they call like a reverse mortgage and then like just put a mortgage on top of property that you own. 
So, or or what does that mean? You you it means basically like you own the property and they assess it at seventy five thousand now. You own it outright, so there's no more mortgage basically. And you, then do you borrow money again? Yeah. yeah. So can I just go into some real quick easy numbers? Sure. So yeah, yeah. Just uh, just to make it easy, if you buy a property for a hundred thousand dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And you get a just to make it easy, say you get a seventy five thousand dollar loan on it. Okay. okay. And you put twenty five thousand dollars cash down. Now let's say you do fifty thousand dollars worth of work. Okay. So you're in it now. You you've uh, spent a hundred thousand plus the fifty thousand. So you're in it for a hundred fifty thousand. Okay. But but now it's new value. It's new market value with all your renovations and work and new tenants and everything. It's worth two hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Okay. So if you want to go back to the bank and say, "Hey, I want to do, or I want to refinance. Basically, I want to uh, get a new loan on this property, pay off the old loan with the proceeds, mm-hmm. and uh, give me the difference." Right. Uh, so, seventy-five percent of two hundred thousand is one hundred fifty thousand dollars. So you okay. basically get all of your money back, exactly. and your twenty percent down was like sweat equity. Exactly. So that 50K you got into it is the money you generated through your efforts, your sweat right. equity. Uh, the $150,000 was the original 100K you put in plus the 50K you put in um, in, you know, in renovations. So you've yeah. gone all, there's some other fees and carrying costs and stuff. We're just doing a simple, simple, quick math, but you're pretty much in it for nothing or close to nothing. So you own a property, get all your money back. You can go buy another property now with all that cash. And it's cash that you still owe to the bank, though, because it's a new mortgage. Well, you still owe one hundred fifty, but you have a property with fifty thousand dollars, so you're fifty thousand dollars richer now, right? Okay. Because your net worth is fifty thousand. Plus, you got rent income, and you're only going to keep a property that's cash flow positive, that's paying you every month more than what you're paying in expenses, maintenance, mortgage, etc. So yeah. you're getting a. However, just say I'll just quick quick number. Say you're making two hundred fifty bucks a month off this property. So you just made fifty thousand dollars cash equity uh, in your property. Plus, you've got cash flow an extra two, three hundred bucks a month, forever, basically. Uh, so you're richer. How long does it take you to play way. this out? So you, so you buy the hmm. property in like what I'm guessing is close to shit condition. Um, mm-hmm. You go through all the phases, right? Buying it, closing it, fixing it, sticking tenants in, refinancing. Is that like a six month period? Right. So the the um, the banks that I work with, they have something that's called a. Um, uh, they need they needed to sit and uh, oh geez I just forgot home, the name home style <laughs> loan. No, they they need you to hold on to the property for a certain period of time mm. uh, before they'll refinance it. Basically, they're like, why are we justifying a hundred thousand dollar increase in the in the value? Mm. And so they need a certain period of time to go by. Uh, seasoning is what it's called. It needs to season. Uh, so but the banks I work with require six months from purchase till refinance minimum time. Okay. Uh, some banks require a year, but it, I, I would say go past them and find one that requires a six month time frame. So you're uh, not waiting to pay off the, the entire original mortgage. You're just waiting that minimum amount of time. Right. The new loan will pay off the old loan. Okay. Got you. The, the new and higher then, amount will go towards first paying off that old loan. And then, uh, the remainder will go towards you, or I mean, if there's other liens, it'll go to your first lien, to your second lien, and then the remainder goes to you. So you got a big chunk of cash, and basically what you're saying is the positive rent from the tenant who's still in your property is going to be paying off that new mortgage mm-hmm. for the next 30 years or whatever now. Yeah, basically. Okay, gotcha. So I the, the key to the strategy is to buy the property, to get most of your money back or all of your money back, so you're in it mm-hmm. for very little, which is the flip. That's the flip yep. part of it. That's no different than buying a house, renovating, and selling it for a profit. Yeah, I'm buying a property, renovating, and then refinancing it. So essentially, you're you're borrowing what amounts to the profit, and then your tenant is the one who basically pays it back over exactly. time. And, and okay. I've also earned the equity in the middle that yeah. I'm locking into it. That I'm not. So taking- when, yeah, so once that mortgage is paid off, now you own this much more valuable unit. So how do you okay. calculate the cash flow on that? Because if you have no money, I mean, if, if you are able to go through a deal, you have no money in the house of your own investment. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I would, is that 
infinity cash on cash. Like, exactly <laughs> it is. Yeah, and I have several properties that you can't calculate. It's infinite. Um, so, because uh, you the obviously the smaller number you divide by, the higher the result gets. So mm-hmm. you can't divide by zero, right? So um, that, that's you can't really what it break. is. Yeah, you break your calculator. So. <laughs> so you always have to leave at least $1 in the property just so you can calculate it. Yeah, exactly. So at, at that point, I wouldn't calculate a return or a rate of return. I would just calculate what my cash, the actual f- cash that I'm getting every month hmm. or every year. And I would say that's what I'm returning on this. Cause now, or you could, you could do it another thing. You could do your return on equity if you wanted to calculate hmm. the equity you have in a property and determine your, uh, your income. Uh, as a percent of the equity stake that you have there. When you do a deal like this, do you not like require, but do you do you make sure that you're physically present in the area to, to I don't know, babysit it uh, through completion? Like, would you do this from Texas for a property in uh, Massachusetts, like sight unseen? Yeah, I just closed on a property last week, actually, for doing exactly this. That's ridiculous. So, so you I mean, that's <laughs> what you're doing, Andrew, right? Well, okay. Basically. So, I guess my, my uh, yes. So I am, and I love it, and I, I don't <laughs> want to be there. But I guess my like unsure part is the contractor piece. I have no experience with that. I mean, I, I'm like as stupid when it comes to that and cost as it comes. So, what I would probably do if I was in your in in your shoes. So you're in a market. You're buying in a market that you don't know necessarily. Mm. I would probably buy several properties in the same market, and then I would actually invest the money to fly out there and spend a weekend there and interview several people, property managers, contractors, or or whatever, uh, in order to get a good feeling about the people I'm going to be working with. Mm. That's what I would do, personally. So you don't want to do everything sight unseen, especially when it comes to people you're working with. Yeah, so especially in Massachusetts, because I know the market side, I know the streets, and I know that I can do that side unseen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you you need to know the market you're working in. That's the most important thing. Yeah, uh, I already have that piece, so I get that. That's a little bit easier for me. Uh, my friends in Texas that invest in other states, they'll fly to the city before they purchase any property, mm-hmm. and then they'll they'll get to know the city a little bit as best you can in two three days. Uh, to get to know the good neighborhoods, bad neighborhoods, and such, mm-hmm. and interview yeah. people. Uh, so I, I would say that's important, especially people. Like you said, you can't you can't just learn people from a from a distance, you know, from reading something, uh, you know, on some random website. You know, you got to you got to especially when they're going to be dealing with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of your dollars. I, I want to meet the person that I'm hmm. giving fifty thousand dollars to do a project to. Yeah, exactly. Eric, th- so- the whole process feels like magic and I've done it now three times and I'm getting paid <laughs> and it still feels like magic. Like I, I'm not even sure I believe that it's going to work because like it's ridiculous, the return. And so my question to you is like, what, uh, I mean, having done this for so long, like what am I not seeing? Like what's the major fail point that you've hit? And, and like, what's your value add? Like, is your only value add just having cash to dump into a place? Okay, so there's two different questions there. Uh, what sort of things are you missing? So, uh, how many years? You just started in the last year. Or how, so, many, right? how many years? Point uh, four years. I've been doing this. <laughs> so, uh, your numbers will fall apart eventually. So, the numbers that you write on a piece of paper for what your expenses, maintenance, and other costs are going to be. Uh, unless you've take, uh, unless you've done a lot of research online or using very uh, uh, large numbers, you're going to realize that the maintenance expenses add up over time. So, uh, what you walk into, what you think you're walking into, ends up always being more expensive. Like that, you, what you get is more expensive than what you think you're going to get. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once you start having to replace water heaters and heating systems and HVAC and roofs and these things, uh, so those will add up. So. Uh, the biggest mistake people make is they don't take enough money out of their profits and set it aside for those future uh, capital expenses. And, and what, I mean, mm-hmm. from having uh, eight properties and like, I think it's like 20 plus units, what what's the magic percent? Like, would you say like, if you hold 15% of everything you take, like you're basically good, 
or do you need to hold 80% of everything? Like what, what do you think is a fair, like to put you, you know, your expectations on the right course? Well, there's some variables in play. So it really depends on how old the property is and how well it's been maintained up till Mm -hmm. this point. Uh, So older properties require more maintenance than younger properties generally. Uh, Not always, but generally. So uh, one rule of thumb that a lot of people use out there is somewhere around 45 to 50% of all your rents will go towards all of your expenses. So if be it uh, taxes, insurance, everything except for mortgage. Uh, principal and interest not counting that number. So taxes, insurance, uh, maintenance expenses, capital improvements and such, uh, and also property management. They usually add about 10, 12% for property management on that. Uh, so on top of the 50, no, that's included inside of that included 50. in it. Okay. So, so, so basically if you took your rent, subtracted your mortgage and cut that in half, or, or you say cut it in half and then first. from first, then subtract your mortgage from that half. And if you still yes. have money in there, like you're golden. That's a that's a conservative number. And if you can cash flow on under those sorts of numbers, you're you're almost definitely going to be in good shape. So, Andrew, how does that compare to our tool? So that that's the exact, do- that's the exact formula I use for the long term piece. So I have like your cash flow today when everything's like your first month. Oh, 50%. Medium term. Yeah, yeah. So as long as you're like good long term, like, and, and the thing is, it's not like a steady, all of this income's going. It's like your good, good, good water heater. Right, you know? exactly. Yeah. You might go a year and you've only spent 20% of your income on your expenses, you know, and you, and you think you're doing yeah. great, but then you're going to get hit the next year. You're going to spend 80% of it because you got a, um, you know, $7,000 heating system or something that goes. So, you know, okay. you, you gotta, you gotta account, account for that year over year. You need to set aside a, I usually say you set aside a bank account and you put, you know, five, 10% of your rents into mm-hmm. that just to expect the roof or whatever, those things that and, go. And how high do you go? Like, do you go up to the deductible of your insurance and then just be like, uh, it's good. Or do you, do you take that 10, 15% and keep it in an account into perpetuity? So most of the stuff that'll go wrong on your property won't be covered by insurance. So when your water heater goes, I, I guess unless it mm. like blows up and floods your house, that would be covered by insurance. But if it just stops yeah. working, your insurance won't cover that. So it's just a normal uh, repair. And that's probably so this was the big question anyhow. I had for so, Andrew. This is uh, the big question I had for you in our last five questions episode. Because we were talking just mm. like about this exact thing where like – you know, the roof is probably something you know is going to last for 10 years if you get something certified. But I was like, what other big expenses are not going to be covered by insurance? Because, I mean, if you have flood insurance, obviously that's covered. But, yeah, so this is great information, mm. knowing that a water heater might go or, I don't know, your an owl gets stuck in your, your chimney or something. Like that's the you worst. Pay for- <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was an endangered owl, so you get a fine. <laughs> yeah, for risking that owl's life, you better better not. Uh, that's actually amazing. a thing. Apparently, there's like this hundred year old law that you can't kill birds, and even if you hit one with your car, you still technically like if, if one flies into your windshield and dies, you still technically broke the law. You probably won't get convicted for it but like that's uh, migratory migratory uh birds anything that yeah. migrates north and south you can't kill mm. yep including <laughs> canadian like geese and a lot of other stuff uh-huh it was written before cars existed and stuff so like every time you hit a bird with your car you're now a criminal oh my god that's so the guy <laughs> so the guy whose plane was taking off from new york and and crashed into the hudson river because it, it hit some geese did you get fined? <laughs> <Criminal. laughs> yeah, maybe. But dude, what? yeah, you're probably required to fly high enough not to hit geese. <laughs> Depends. I don't know, man. So, Eric, what's what's your value add? Like, why why can't or or can anyone do this? Like, is there something that you figured out uh, that that sets you apart? Right. So what is my personal value add? So yeah. I, I guess there's some of the creativity to find these deals, right? And, uh, mm. and trust yourself enough and have the plans and contingency 
to be able to do these things. So that that's something that I've developed over time. Uh, but to go to your question, can anybody do it? Yes, I believe 100%. And not to like promote myself, but that's what my website's dedicated mm. to. Mm-hmm. Is I really truly believe that anybody of you know that's generally you know capable you know physically and mentally can do it. It's really not hard as long as they have a system that they've developed in place up front. They can do that. So, yeah. um, you know, some people will never will not be as creative as other people, or some people can see a finished product, can see the house after it's done in their mind, mm-hmm. and other people can't. But the general concept anybody can do, which is how creative can they get with it? So, Dude, yeah, so I want to get back to, to the multifamily things, but I have to ask. Um, most of your stuff is not near you. I mean, it's basically on the other side of the country. Um, you know, and you, and you obviously have property managers in place as a result. Uh, so how much of your time is really consumed by the properties that you own versus just like other things? Uh, so now, so before I moved to Texas, when I was in Massachusetts, I was spending 100% of my time on my real estate. And what was interesting is I was making plenty of money off of them, but I didn't, I was stuck working inside my business as the saying goes, and I wasn't working on my business. Mm. Right. So mm. when, when I moved to Texas, which we kind of did on a whim just because we love Texas and we hated the weather in Massachusetts, uh, I was suddenly forced to make my business run itself. Mm. And that is when I realized that I was actually financially independent, that I earned enough money that I didn't have to work. And so that was the kind of catalyst for that. Um, now, be, being able to manage your property from a distance or how much time I spend on it is only a few hours a week, I would say, right now. Hmm. So, you know, wow. dealing call, calling a property manager and dealing with that. And, um, you know, yeah. there is some accounting that we have to do that takes time, too. I actually want to go deeper on that because uh, you first, you, you made all of your money through working for the military, right? The seed money, hmm. that's that first... Uh, for my second property, yes, that's so where I got it from. I'm going to go out on a limb uh, for my ex- ex- my non-experience, but but talking to people that you don't get rich working for the military, right? It's not like they're paying you an exorbitant salary. It's like it's like pretty no. reasonable. Yeah, it is reasonable. the The only benefit is is that if you deploy overseas, you don't pay any of your living expenses because mm. uh, mm. they're they're paying for all your food and everything else. So if you're smart with your money, you can have a lot of money saved. Mm-hmm. So you um, you took like a normal person's salary, saved a lot. How long from like start, you know, like your epiphany to being able to realize that you were financially dependent? Like what, what was that timeline? So I came back from Afghanistan at the end of 2011 and I moved to Texas in 2015. So my first, my first flip was in 2012. So that was about three years it took me to go from... Uh, getting into real estate full time to being financially independent and, and stopping working full time. Wow, that is fantastic. So is is that what you're hoping to do, Andrew? I was gonna be like, dude, teach me. Three years <laughs> of financial independence. What I'm really curious about, and maybe I mean, Andrew, you could shed a little mm-hmm. bit of light into what yours is as well. But I mean, you know, you're doing it, Eric, per, uh, full time. So, what does your information system look like for managing your business. And to give you an example, like for my business, I have an Asana account and there's a project in there called Standard Operating Procedures. And I have like articles I've written on how to do everything, you know, how to publish a video, how to edit a podcast. And then I have like a CRM with like all my contacts in there, their phone number, Twitter. Like, So what are some of like the informational pieces? Do you have like a wiki that you've basically like started building up with like, here's what to do when the water heater breaks or like, here's all the contact information for my contractors. What does it look like outside of your brain? Right. So I'm actually building that. In the military, we call that SOP, a standard operating procedure. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think some corporations use similar terminology for it as well. Uh, so I'm developing that so that I can take this this SOP and hand it off to a property manager someday and yeah. then just like do this, not be involved at all. Like mm-hmm. eventually, that's the, that's the goal. So I don't have that document fully developed yet and uh but we are developing exactly what you just said right now though how we manage our stuff is we just went a little bit more digital uh this past year since we moved uh so i i use microsoft OneDrive, which comes with uh, a terabyte of storage comes with my uh, microsoft office subscription mm-hmm. and i put all of my documents electronic now 
Okay. So I can actually, when I was at the bank the other day opening an account uh, for the uh, refi, they asked me for my EIN for my business, and I didn't have the paperwork, so I just pulled it up on my phone and emailed it to them on the spot. Mm. So it's really, it's really helpful with that. Uh, for managing my properties, I use, uh, I, I don't know if I can plug a, a, another company, but I use Buildium. Buildium.com. Uh, okay. um, and, and what do they do for bit, you? They're a little bit more expensive, but they're property management software uh, geared toward uh, property managers. I, okay. I'm, a, I'm an investor, not a property manager, but I have a property management aspect to what I do. Yeah. And what they let me do is uh, basically I can I can advertise on my properties. They syndicate with all like uh, apartments.com, Zillow.com, and these others. Uh, they syndicate with them. So every time I have a vacancy, it just pops right up on uh, all those websites and Craigslist. Oh, sweet. Uh, I, so I don't have to do all that work anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh Let's see. What else did I do? I now, do you have property managers log in to Buildium to do other management things through there, or is it only, excuse me, for listings? So I do. I have. Um, there, there's different levels you can div- give different um, uh, capabilities to people who log in, and I do mm-hmm. have a property manager who has uh, access to the. Um, I forget what the exact term is, but they can they can do work orders and they can take. Uh, you know that sort of physical stuff with the properties. Mm. Uh, oh, cool. We ha- we handle applications, so we don't have anybody. Uh, so we still handle some of the pieces ourselves that I don't trust other people to do yet, like receiving applications, vetting tenants, and such. Yeah, Eric, I, I have one last one for you. Yeah. Uh, we get a ton of emails where people appreciate the strategy, are excited for the possibilities. Um, and they get stuck in the, the cliche, like analysis paralysis. Um, you know, maybe it's the risk. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not like they don't have the money. They just, you know, maybe it's a lot for one place or, uh, having been through the paces with this, what, what would you say to that? It, it overcoming your analysis paralysis? Yeah. Like just getting started. I mean, if, if you've decided that you want to do this. And you just keep not doing it for all the excuses in the book. You're like, what would you say to that? I'd say create a business plan, honestly. So if you write a plan and you say, this is the market, this is the type of property, these are the returns I'm looking for, this is my strategy, right? And so you've got it all on a piece of paper, and then you find a property that fits your criteria, do it. Hmm. Right? They, you know, So it's written down. You check, 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 check. I got all my criteria. Go for it. Uh, there's no more fear, or you can alleviate some of the fear when you do that. When you have a solid plan in place. That was like such a simple, awesome answer. <laughs> wow. I thought, thought you were gonna like tell me like a ten minute thing. That was that's brilliant. I like that. Well, thank you. Yeah. So yeah, planning, awesome. planning is key. So as and, long as you plan ahead. And wait, let me good. let me guess. Do you have a templated plan on your website? <laughs> I probably do somewhere up there. <laughs> no, but uh, th- that's from my military background. Is because mm. as a military officer, everything we do is about planning, identifying risks, mitigating risks, and such. So that's where like that really comes from. Is is I believe strongly in a plan, and yeah. identifying your risks, and then identifying how you're going to mitigate those risks. You do that all up front, 90 percent, you know, plan right there. You're, you'll be ready to accomplish anything. So, you know, that comes from that, that military mindset. So yeah. what you've been telling us is the military is basically like real estate investing training. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's kind of funny. I, I think the military, you can take out of what you want to take out of it. If you yeah. go there and you, and you want to take the mindset that they, that they provide to you and you want to take the education and knowledge and apply it to something in your life, you can. Or you can squander everything that they're giving you and not, which most people do. Uh, you know, so it's really like anything else, like college. You take mm-hmm. out of it what you want to take out of it. You know, the yeah, degree doesn't mean the, anything. I think from the, the couple of military people we've had on the show so far, I've just kind of gotten this sense that uh, a lot of people feel like the military doesn't leave them with skills or opportunities they could transfer to the civilian world, and maybe in a strict like resume line sense, sometimes it doesn't. But it really does seem like living in the system that prioritizes rules and systems and mitigation strategies, planning, that kind of stuff, you can come out with a lot of those 
more high level skills that you can apply as long as you know how to be a little bit, you know, adaptive to different situations. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's 100% right. Like I, I'm an infantry officer. What I do has virtually zero application unless I go into security somewhere. Mm-hmm. It has zero application to like real life, like the actual like resume stuff. But yeah. what, exactly what you said is right. If you apply the the knowledge and planning, preparation, uh, establishing SOPs and these things that are core fundamentals to the U.S. military, mm-hmm. that's what every major corporation is doing. They create a system and then they have their people implement those systems. Mm. Yeah. You know, and they and they identify the risks and then they mitigate the risks. They're literally doing exactly that. If, so if mm-hmm. you take that high level stuff and you apply it to what you're doing, you're going to be a lot more successful in life. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically exactly what I'm ending up doing with my business right now. It's like top of mind. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. uh, So Eric, if people want to read your stuff and I'm looking at your website right now, I'm actually reading the article. It's like 18 ridiculously awesome ways to go on autopilot, not make your business. I feel like Andrew, you should read this one, but if people want to go on your site, read your stuff, um, where should they go? They go to ericbolin.com, B-O-W-L-I-N. And yeah, I have a lot of great stuff, uh, a lot, mostly high-level stuff, uh, c- conceptual type articles. Uh, I don't get into the weeds in how to do a flip or anything yeah. like that. I get in, I talk about the mindset it takes to be an investor, uh, mostly. And then I got some stuff about automating your business like that with that article. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's just little pieces that anybody could probably take one or two things from and help out with their little business. Eric, so you're a normal dude. How old are you? I'm 31. Thirty-one. You're younger than me, yeah. and you're and you're done. You're tapped out of. Damn it! I have to work. Wait, harder. you're Andrew. You're older than thirty-one. I thought you were thirty-one. Well, I'll be thirty-two in uh, less than thirty days from now. So oh, I'm, okay. I'm guessing that I'm. It I'm not that much older, in. but I'm still working. A little bit older than me. <laughs> well, it, you know, be, being uh, financially independent doesn't mean you don't work anymore, right? Oh yeah. yeah. It just means you, you're free to do what you like to do, mm-hmm. and. Right now, what I like to do is my website and travel. So, you know, those are what I enjoy doing. I'm not beholden to some boss that's telling me what to do every day. Uh, And so if you're doing what you love and you're free to do it, that's that's what it is. That's what it's all about. Exactly. That's my goal, too. Well, Eric, thank you so much for coming to the show. And we'll have links to all your stuff and your site in the show notes. It's been awesome. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for having me. It's been a great time. I love talking about real estate. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. So guys, if you got questions, Eric's website is a good resource. Otherwise you can email us over at listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. You can also check out our pro version of our site with our real estate investment tool that Andrew spent so many hours coding and our community over at pro.listenmoneymatters.com. And also check out our toolbox at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox for all of our favorite books, apps, and personal finance resources that can help you manage your money better. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you in next week's episode. Later, guys. Later, man. Later. Tell your friends about this show. Salesforce helps marketers get smarter about their customers and plan better campaigns that blur the lines between marketing, sales, commerce, and service, all in the name of customer success. That's great marketing, made by you at Salesforce. Connect to your customers in a whole new way. See a demo at salesforce.com money.